Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast series where we bring you socially distanced conversations with authors near and far. I'm your host, Maddie Gobo, the events manager here at Skylight Books. Um, If you're not familiar with us, we are an independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. Right now, we are open for in-store shopping with a mask. We just expanded our hours. So weekdays, we are now open 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. And weekends, we're open 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. Um, We want to strongly, strongly encourage you all to get out there and get your Christmas shopping or your holiday shopping done early. Um, It's a crazy year, as you know, and uh, we want to make sure you get the books you're looking for. So um, yes, you're welcome to come and shop in store. We also do curbside pickup those same hours, and we are also able to ship you books anywhere in the country if you order online at our website, skylightbooks.com. All right, so today we have uh, a great conversation I'm really looking forward to. We're gonna be talking about deportation, um, America's long history of expelling immigrants. The book is called The Deportation Machine, and it's by Adam Goodman. He's gonna be in conversation with Romeo Guzman. Um, I'm gonna introduce them in just a second, but I wanna say a few more words about the book. So The Deportation Machine traces the long and troubling history of the US government's systematic efforts to terrorize and expel immigrants over the past 140 years. It is a long history. Um, In a a sweeping and engaging narrative, uh, Adam Goodman examines how federal, state, and local officials have targeted various groups for expulsion from Chinese and Europeans at the turn of the 20th century to Central Americans and Muslims today. Of course, uh, this conversation remains relevant. Um, This episode is going to come out after the election, so it may be a somewhat different political landscape, but this issue is always pressing and um, you know no matter the political party in power we still are continuing to uh, practice a lot of this same um, policy that is so harmful to so many people. So I'm going to introduce our guests today and they'll be able to tell you more. Adam Goodman is assistant professor of history and Latin American and Latino studies at the University of Illinois at Chicago. His articles, essays, and reviews have appeared in publications such as the Journal of American History, The Nation, and The Washington Post. He has discussed Latinx history and immigration policy in Spanish and English language interviews on Latino USA, Univision, C-SPAN's Book TV, Mexico's Canal 22, and Backstory, among other programs and outlets. In conversation with Adam is Romeo Guzman, 
Romero Guzman is an academic public historian and cultural worker residing in San Gabriel Valley. Adam and Romeo, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. We're, uh, I think we're both really big fans of Skylight, so we're happy to, to be here and to support and um, to promote the book. And as you mentioned, Maddie, it's, it's not quite uh, election, so we're, we're all kind of in, I think, a good, anxious, kind of nervous mood. Um, but as you also mentioned, regardless of what happens, right, these issues are not going away. And indeed, uh, one of the things we hope to talk about today is, is the long history of deportation and also really tease out some of the differences and similarities between the current administration, the previous administration, and perhaps even ask Adam to venture some guesses as to how these things might look regardless of, or <laughs> depending on who wins or loses in a week, right? So um, let's go ahead and jump into it, Adam. Uh, you know, good. You know, as, as you know, as, as we know, right, there's a sort of metaphor or there's a description of the United States as a nation of immigrants and particularly as one that's very welcoming to immigrants. But right in that first sentence of your book, you note that uh, the United States has deported 57 million people since 1882. And you note that this is more than any other country in the world. So I wonder if you could help us tease out that tension between both deporting the most uh, people in the, you know, as a nation, deporting most people in the world, and also as having this symbolism around being a welcoming place for immigrants. Yeah, I mean, first of all, let me say thank you again to Maddie and to Skylight for having us, and, you know, to you, Romeo, for for engaging in this conversation. I only wish we could be in person in, L in LA um, and, you know, be able to, you know, um, perhaps commiserate, perhaps celebrate. We'll see what happens, like you said, in a week. But I think either way, regardless of the outcome of the election, you know, what we do know is that there's a long bipartisan history of deportation in the United States. Democrats and Republicans alike have supported punitive policies. And you know, as you noted, you know, deported more than 57 million people during the last 140 years. And what I actually discovered as I dug a little bit deeper into the research and crunched a lot of the numbers I was finding in government reports, is that during the last century, during the last 100 years, the United States has deported more people than it's allowed to stay on a permanent basis. And that raises that larger question that you bring up, you know, about what kind of nation is the United States? And in a sense, the two go hand in hand, the nation of immigrants narrative and the deportation nation narrative, in that, you know, we have welcomed people into this country, although selectively so uh, throughout US history, but as a result, there have been tens of millions of immigrants who have come to the U.S. and settled here, created lives here, uh, had families here, stayed here for you know, many generations. And, you know, there were many people here out of status. There were many people here who had tenuous legal status and people that were subject to deportation. You know, we could think about other countries that may have not let people enter in the first place. And then there'd be fewer immigrants to deport, perhaps. So I think that you know, these two go hand in hand, the nation of immigrants narrative, the deportation nation narrative, but the former is certainly the dominant you know, mythical narrative that we learn about in you know, public schools across the country and that we hear most often you know, from politicians, although that's you know, changed a little bit in the last few years. And I think it's worth, uh, you know, worth thinking about and discussing a little more. Yeah, and, and you know, so your book, really sort of dives into that and sort of pulls a veneer in some way from this idea, uh, this mythic idea of a welcoming place. And it does so um, with the very simple concept of the deportation machine. 
And, and I think by breaking down the machine into its parts, you're able to sort of illuminate not just the amount, but the types and the way in which the machine works. So I think perhaps a good place to, my, to start or to continue would be to describe the machine. Um, what are its parts? How does it work? And how has it evolved over the last you know, 140 years or whatever it might be? Yeah, this is something that you know, took me a while to figure out, um, but you know, kind of the, the pieces fit together after pounding the pavement for many years, you know, doing archival research, oral histories and interviews with people across the US and in Mexico. And I, I kind of identified three different mechanisms of expulsion that immigration officials have relied on since the federal government took control over immigration in the late 19th century. And those three mechanisms are formal deportations, the euphemistically termed voluntary departures, even though there's nothing voluntary about them, uh, and then self-deportation campaigns. You know, so let me just take a second to describe those three. Um, you know, and before I do, I would just mention that the vast majority, about 85 to 90% of deportations throughout US history have happened through coercive means, the voluntary departures and the self-deportations. And we know very little about those histories. We know very little about you know, what expulsion has looked like um, during the last century and a half. And that's what the book you know, gets at and uncovers. But if we think of, you know, what does deportation look like? What is the actual process of expelling someone from the country? I think some people, a lot of people perhaps might imagine there's a, a judge in black robes sitting in a courtroom uh, who is presiding over a case and hearing its merits and deciding whether or not someone can stay or whether they have to leave. And the truth is that, you know, that has happened, you know, very infrequently. Most expulsions from the United States have happened through expedited fast track means uh, with little to no due process and far from public view. So formal deportations are what we know the most about and we've heard about most often in the news and you know, the federal government. And these traditionally have been by order of an immigration judge, but in recent years they've become streamlined and now they're just done through administrative process. And that's similar to the euphemistically called voluntary departures that I mentioned earlier. Uh, and this is a really confusing term. On the one hand, I've been in a lot of conversations with people uh, about what exactly voluntary departure means. Uh, and I always try to clarify that voluntary departures happen after an immigration agent apprehends a person. And at that point pressures or coerces them to sign a piece of paper, foregoing their legal rights to stay in the country and fight their case and they agree to leave. And why do they do that, you might ask? Oftentimes it's because they're threatened with harsher penalties. You know, formal deportations carry harsher consequences, including spending an indefinite time in detention as people's cases make their way through the bureaucracy, as well as perhaps five, 10 or 20 year, even lifetime bans on re-entering the United States. So immigration officials threaten people you know, with with those penalties and pressure them to accept voluntary departure. Uh, they're able to leave the country more quickly, although oftentimes they have to pay their own way to do so, uh, but they might be able to re-enter as well. And the, what I liken voluntary departures to in the book are the role that uh, plea bargains play in the criminal justice system. If we think of you know, how many cases in the criminal justice system actually make it to trial, uh, it's relatively few uh, because you know, prosecutors and you know, the judge 
threaten people with, I don't know, 20 or 30 years in prison. So they might take a plea deal for two or three years because they don't want to risk that harsher penalty. And just very quickly, the third mechanism, the self-deportation campaigns, the point here is to make people's lives so miserable that they decide to pick up and leave without ever coming into contact with an immigration official. This sometimes has happened through local, state, and federal laws uh, that have been very restrictive and made migrants' lives difficult. Uh, it's also happened through the threat of violence or physical acts of violence, and many times media campaigns and fear campaigns that have been directed at you know, immigrants and non-citizens. So those are the three mechanisms that I trace throughout US history. And I really focus on the second and the third, the voluntary departures and the self-deportations, which we, we simply don't know much about. I mean, as a historian, I know that oftentimes when we find migrants in the archive, it's usually because they've encountered the state in a negative way or because they're asking the state for something. So to me, it sounds like these latter two, right, the self-deportation and the voluntary one, um, would leave less of a paper trail. So I was, I was curious to hear more about how you found um, these voices and how you also perhaps in doing that are able to give a, a counter narrative, right? A, a non-state perspective to what's taking place. And you're, you're picking up on something important here and, that, and that's that this book almost never happened. You know, as I started out the research, uh, I went to Washington DC and talked with, you know, Marion Smith at that time, the historian of the USCIS, the Citizenship Immigration Services. And she basically told me that the whole point of voluntary departures was to save money, you know, to cut costs. And that might be hearings and detention, but it also meant not keeping any records. Uh, and that made it really difficult for me as an historian, as you mentioned, but you know, it also kind of pushed me beyond my comfort zone and maybe you know, dig a little bit um, deeper in you know, places I wouldn't have necessarily gone otherwise. And you know, some of that had to do with conducting interviews and oral histories uh, with migrants and migrants' family members, people who would, had been deported uh, you know, or whose lives deportation had affected. And that was an important part of this story as well. I wasn't just trying to get at the political history of deportation, but I wanted to know, you know how people had experienced it, the physical and human costs, and how people had organized and fought back. Um, but you know, this, is, this is something that did not come together at the beginning, and there was a period of time perhaps a period of years where I wasn't sure whether, whether I'd be able to pull it off, but you know, mostly by just being stubborn and persistent, uh, I was able to piece together that narrative. But I, I definitely appreciate the question because it was one that I spent a lot of time mulling over and probably lost a little bit, a little bit too much sleep uh, along the way. And this is always a, a hard question to answer, but um, you know, for folks out there who, who like numbers and who like what we might consider hard facts, right? How do you know if the numbers that you're putting out there are low, high, particularly if we think about all these voluntary departures folks that leave um, without, any, without any sort of real paper trail, right? Yeah, and you know, immigration statistics from the get-go uh, are politicized you know, consistently. And this was something I tried to tease out in the book and I ex you know, discuss explicitly as well. But this was a challenge. You know, this was a challenge trying to figure out, you know, how many unique individuals had been deported versus how many deportations had been carried out. You know, and what I realized was that, you know, I was interested in state capacity and the ability of immigration officials in the immigration service to execute deportations. And I actually became more curious about the experiences of individuals who had been targeted by the deportation machine on multiple occasions. 
And so many people uh, throughout US history, and I should probably mention here that you know, one of the startling discoveries of the book was that of the 57 million people throughout US history, around nine out of 10 deportees were Mexicans. Right? The deportation machine is disproportionately targeted Mexicans and I think created you know, harmful, inaccurate stereotypes as a result. And many Mexicans you know, who found themselves uh, trapped up in the machine and its mechanisms, uh, you know, they were deported on more than one occasion. And I think that we need to recognize you know, the way that you know, that may have had a negative effect on their lives as individuals, on their families, and also on, as I mentioned, these stereotypes of who is uh, American, you know, who is a prototypical illegal alien in the, in the words of the, the law. And you know, that's something that I wouldn't have recognized or picked up on had I not been paying attention to the numbers and these questions of you know, total deportations versus unique individuals. Uh, but it's, it's a really important point. And you know, I think we should always be mindful when we're consuming any information or statistics in particular of how the immigration service might weaponize those or use those for particular ends. So one of the things I trace, you know, just very quickly to wrap up, um, is that the immigration service inflated the numbers of apprehensions and they tried to inflate the numbers of deportations as a play to request more money from Congress, right? To get uh, more, uh, I guess, to increase their annual budget and also to make themselves look better, to be able to celebrate their supposed accomplishments. Yeah, definitely. I, I was I was reminded um, in some ways, uh, particularly chapters four and five were, were really sort of interesting because you know I, I was born in 1980, and I was born in 1980. Uh, both of my grandfathers were Bracelos, even though I'm not sure if they were formal Bracelos. I think they migrated during the Bracero program. Um, and then my my own family, right? My father and mother migrated in the mid 70s, and my brother was born in 79, and my dad was deported, I think, the day after he was born. Um, but he tells the story of sort of just coming back right away, right? So there's this sort of like vague sort of family history around this type, this period that you that was really helpful and illuminated for me, which you call the, the age of mass expulsion. So I was wondering if you could tell us about why that decade was that those two decades, 65 to 85, um, you know, what was happening? What were the historical factors that led to those conditions and to, you know, to the sort of historical moment? I, I appreciate you sharing that. And, you know, I've gotten some feedback from readers uh, who have let me know that, um, you know, these chapters that you mentioned that cover the 1960s and 1980s really resonate with them and their families. You know, they can relate to them uh, in terms of the environment that came to exist. And I call it the dawn of the age of mass expulsion because this is when we really see an uptick in the number of deportations each year. This is when expulsion becomes uh, an everyday fact of life for some people, or at least the possibility of being apprehended becomes you know, a reality you know, for many people in this country, some of whom had lived here for years or even decades you know, and had really strong roots. You know, so I did an oral history with a man you know, who migrated in the, the 70s and the 80s. And he described to me you know, the ways in which you know, immigration and enforcement and deportation, the possibility of being expelled had really become a normalized part of his life in many ways, where each day he'd go to work on a ranch in, in the Central Valley of California, and he put on his clothes, put on his pants, put on his socks and his boots, and he'd be sure to hide $20 on his person somewhere, knowing that that day the Immigration Service might show up and deport him to Tijuana. 
and he wanted to have a little bit of money with him so he'd be able to return to the United States if that did happen. And some of the other oral histories I did, which I corroborated with newspaper articles and other archival sources, really show that, you know, the, the, the environment that that type of heavy policing of migrant communities, and not just migrant communities, but ethnic Mexican communities, these policies targeted Mexican Americans, US citizens, people with permanent residence as well. But the type of environment that was created, you know, really took a toll on people's lives, and I think created perhaps a situation and circumstances that would be very familiar uh, to listeners today, and that you know, people stopped going to the market. They stopped going to uh, shopping uh, centers. They stopped going to um, Sunday mass even in the movies because immigration officials were showing up there and carrying out raids on a regular basis. Uh, and this is something that you know really stood out to people as I discussed it with them. And I think you know is something that we can trace from the late 1970s up until the Great Recession of 2008. There's an average of 900,000 expulsions each year. And that's a shocking statistic. And it speaks to you know, the fact that the Immigration Service was ramping up its efforts as more people crossed the border now who were considered unauthorized because of changes in state policy. And you know, the state policies created this quote unquote problem, right, of undocumented migration where we had had this historic labor demand uh, traditionally. And once those policies no longer allowed for immigrant laborers to enter the country, you know, people continued to come uh, because they had roots, they had economic opportunities, and also because US employers recruited them and encouraged them to do so. But now they're considered undocumented. You know, different legislative policies could have you know, lessened those pressures, but instead, and we see a situation develop over the course of those decades, which really took an extraordinary toll on many you know, migrant as well as you know, ethnic, ethnic Mexican communities. Yeah, and there's, I mean, there's so many things in those, those decades that you sort of outlined, but there's two things that really stuck out, and I hope we can dive into them a little bit. Um, of course, you know, maybe we can do this one second, but of course, it's not that want there, right? This, this, we've, you know, I've argued, and, and a partner have argued, and, you know, our co-editors have argued that El Monte and Tatel Monte matter regionally and nationally. And we didn't know in, until you told us, right, that El Monte mattered in this one very specific factory, which we'll talk about. But before we get there, um, you narrate this moment in which uh, the commissioner of the INS is this guy named Leonel Castillo, a Mexican-American. And I don't want to say he's resisting, and I don't want to sort of tag him in any political sort of stripes or anything like that. But there's things that he's doing in there that I think make sense from a human perspective, right? And, and I think there's things that he's doing and the pushback that he gets that also speaks to all the things that we already know about the INS. So I was wondering if you could just sort of tell us a little more about what's going on with him, what does he do, and, and what happens to him. Yeah, Leonel Castillo uh, was the first Mexican-American commissioner of the Immigration Naturalization Service, which is you know, the predecessor to the Department of Homeland Security. He's from Houston, kind of a high school football star, uh, a Peace Corps volunteer. He was a comptroller in the city of Houston before you know, Jimmy Carter tapped him to lead the INS in the late 1970s. He served for a couple of years and he encountered uh, tremendous pushback from all sides. 
right? On the one hand, as you alluded to, he did try to implement, you know, some liberal progressive policies. You know, the administration starts to push for calling um, people undocumented workers rather than illegal aliens. They try to implement some kind of you know, rhetorical changes, but also to shift the emphasis of the immigration service more towards service and providing for the migrant community and less toward enforcement. And what he finds is that it's extraordinarily difficult to move this enormous intractable bureaucracy, right? The Immigration Naturalization Service had its marching orders and that was to apprehend and deport people. And by that point, as I mentioned, you know, there were hundreds of thousands of deportations happening each year. So on the one hand, you have Castillo and Jimmy Carter pushing for these progressive changes. Deportations have also reached record numbers at the same time, right? And they're getting criticized by Chicano and Chicana activists. They're getting criticized by rank and file INS agents, uh, kind of the, the inherent racism of the immigration service is something that you know, I found in the archival record and really disturbing documents, you know, some of which I uncovered in the records of the Border Patrol. And you know, it's perhaps not surprising, but you know, there are all kinds of ways that people push back within the agency to kind of undermine Castillo's initiatives and his policies. And you know, he finds himself between a rock and a hard place. Uh, and you know, he leaves 1979 without having you know, made much change and also created a lot of enemies. And, and of course, there's, um, I don't want to compare these things, but uh, the machine has its flaws, right? And the machine has its weak points. And, and perhaps, and folks who are listening are going to are gonna say, of course, he's going to pick this one section to ask Adam to read because it's from, you know, it's from what he writes about, from the place that he loves to work in. So do you mind uh, just maybe reading from, from chapter five and then explaining um, how folks raged against the machine? Yeah. Javier Garcia Bautista had not been working for long on Wednesday, May 17, 1978, when someone in the carpentry department of the Sabico of California Inc. Shoe Company in suburban South El Monte yelled out, the migra is here. Early that morning, after a planning meeting in their downtown Los Angeles office, 40 INS investigators piled into at least eight vans and one bus and headed east to their target. They arrived a little before eight o'clock a.m. And after a company executive gave them permission to conduct a survey, the agents blocked off all the exits, the front door leading out to the employee parking lot, the north facing windows, and the loading dock near the gate around back. With the building secured, teams of three to four investigators entered the factory and fanned out. Hoping to avoid detection, the 22-year-old Garcia Bautista tucked himself out of sight. As he hid, the agent circulated throughout the massive 62,500 square foot plant, indiscriminately questioning the workers and asking them if they had papers. They arrested men and women, taking down their information, handcuffing some and pushing others. Soon after the raid started, Two agents from Supervisor J.L. O'Brien's crew approached 17-year-old Rosa Melchor Lopez at her workstation, 
When she didn't respond to their inquiry about whether she had papers, they took hold of her arms, one on either side of the five foot two inch woman. Once outside the factory, an investigator searched Melchor Lopez's bag and then shoved her onto the INS bus, which was already packed with her coworkers. At 10.05 a.m., as the operation wound down, plainclothes investigator Raleigh Clark shined his flashlight into a large container. I see a body here, he called out, at which point he and another agent pulled Javier Garcia Bautista from his hiding place, handcuffed him, and led him out to the waiting vehicles. The INS investigators returned to downtown Los Angeles that morning with 119 Sabika employees in custody. By mid-afternoon, they had coerced most of the people to sign voluntary departure forms. Around five o'clock PM, no more than nine hours after the raid had started, half of the workers, some 24 men and all of the 35 women in the group were aboard government buses headed to San Isidro where they would be deported to Mexico. But the buses never made it to the border that evening. What neither the immigration officials nor the Sabika employees knew at the time was that as agents loaded the detainees onto the buses, a coalition of immigrants, labor organizers, and lawyer activists had convened a federal judge to sign a temporary restraining order stopping the workers' deportation. Nor could they imagine that in the days, weeks, months, and years ahead, the case would provide a blueprint for how to bring the seemingly unstoppable deportation machine to a screeching halt. So that is the opening for the fifth chapter of the book, Fighting the Machine in the Streets and in the Courts. And this is certainly a theme that I carry throughout in terms of how people have pushed back. Their machine has always been vulnerable. It still is today. And what activists have done is try to identify its weak points and try to apply as much pressure to them as possible. This has been you know, true since the late 19th century, you know, from the start of the book, looking at the history of the targeting of Chinese migrants for expulsion up until the present as young undocumented uh, youth have come out and protested, conducted acts of civil disobedience uh, and fought in creative ways, put, putting their bodies on the lines in many cases to stay in the country. But you know, one of the things about this chapter, and I didn't know how to write this chapter. You know, this, this was a chapter that it took a while to come together and it took a lot of time in El Monte and South El Monte, as well as in archives in Los Angeles. You know, but this was something that I really have to thank you, Romeo, and Caribbean Fragosa, you know, the co-directors of the South El Monte Arts Posse, you know, who really made this chapter possible in many ways um, through the work that you've done there on the ground and I gave a talk at the El Monte Library to talk about this particular incident. And I described um, the shoe factory raid and the ways that people from all different backgrounds had bonded together you know, in solidarity and fought back and actually won. A lot of the deportation cases you know, were dismissed. You know, the immigration service could not remove the people and a larger class action suit led to some broad wins as well. But after I gave that talk at the library, a woman came up to me who was in the audience and she said, you know, I worked at the shoe factory then, I worked there then, you know, and I ended up conducting an oral history uh, with her uh, for, you know, some app and for the project that was also, 
know, the real basis for the chapter for your wonderful edited volume, East of East, The Making of Greater El Monte. And I really recommend people check that out um, as well. But these are, you know, in many ways, community histories, and they also speak to broader you know, lessons about how people have successfully organized against the machine. But this is something that, you know, only could have come together, I think, through these collaborative efforts um, among, you know, researchers and historians, but also activists and organizers. And, you know, that was, you know, the same lesson I took away from learning about, you know, this shoe factory raid in the late 1970s and how and why it was successful. It had a lot to do with organizing had a lot to do with broad-based solidarity, and more than anything, sustained struggle. I, I don't, I don't know how to say this, but it almost felt contradictory. Um, like, like one of the strategies was just to say no, right? Like to not sign the voluntary departure form. And it, it don't, can you just talk about that? Like how it just seemed like such a simple thing, but it, there's also a lot of weight in doing that. So I just maybe just like that as a form of resistance and just sort of. Without a doubt, you know, one of the things that I found in the archives was that, you know, people in the 1970s were conducting know your rights workshops just as they are today. Uh, and empowering the immigrant community, right? educating the immigrant community and organizing them was oftentimes the most effective strategy to fight back. And one of the things they realized, you know, we have to remember this is in the late 1970s before the days of biometrics and integrated computer databases that with two keystrokes can pull up someone's migration history and personal you know, identifiable information. This was a time when if someone did not establish their deportability, in other words, did not tell immigration agents where they were born, what country they're from, how they had entered the country, it then became the burden of the immigration service to prove where that person was from and to show that they had entered without authorization. And the INS was completely caught off guard by this, and they were incapable of determining any of that. And essentially, immigration judges were left with no choice but to drop the cases. And they recognized that this represented a real threat, a grave threat to the deportation machine. And there's a editorial at the time in the Wall Street Journal that said, this was the worst nightmare of the immigration service, was that immigrants en masse would start rejecting voluntary departure and fighting their case, right? Uh, and essentially what happened was the activists had touched upon a way to potentially bring the deportation machine down, right? Uh, they did not succeed in doing so. And I don't think we can blame you know, them or the people you know, who didn't decide to pursue that route because you know, as one of the lawyers I interviewed who was involved in this fight told me, you know, no lawyer had to spend a night in detention you know, trying to convince someone to fight their case. Because remember, if they reject voluntary departure, their case will play out through formal deportation. They might be in detention for an indefinite period of time. And that's an enormous ask, obviously. Um, so, you know, they didn't succeed. But I want to, at the same time, really hold on to the fact that they did figure out a way, right, to bring the deportation machine, you know, to a halt. I think that's really important for people to remember. And it's something that you know, people certainly should, you know, take into consideration today and moving forward are those vulnerabilities and trying to identify them and apply pressure to them. Yeah, and, you know, we're, we're a week out from the presidential debate and we're about a week <laughs> away from this election um, that will be historic in many ways, hopefully. So I kind of want to perhaps end here, which is, um, you know, during last week's debate, uh, 
there was a question around the separation of Central American children and refugees at the border. And Trump, uh, in his usual sort of evasive non-answer, uh, avoided all responsibility, right? And not just avoided responsibility, but found a way to lie. Uh, and this lie has been repeated multiple times. And essentially, he said something like, we separated them from the narcos, right? So he found a way to make himself a hero in this narrative that's clearly not accurate. But one of the things that he did say was who built those cages? So I know this is kind of a big question, but I, I kind of want to hear from you um, what's changed during the Trump presidency from the Obama presidency? What are some things that are similar? Um, and what does that tell us about the deportation machine? And then the other really big question is, uh, you know, we have a lot of hopes that Biden's going to win, but I, I kind of want to know, like, if that does happen, what can we realistically expect in terms of on-the-ground immigration policy, refugee policy? And these are big questions. And do we have another two hours here? Or, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, they're they're important questions that everyone's thinking about, including me um, and you, I know as well. And you know, let me see what I can do here. You know, there have been more than four hundred changes to immigration policy during the last four years. And the Trump administration has really waged an all-out war on immigrants, I would say, both legal and people in the country without authorization. Um, they've tried to end the asylum system as we know it. Uh, they've tried to expedite and speed up deportations uh, as much as they can. Uh, and they have implemented these prevention through deterrence policies, which I also trace in the book, which have a long history dating back to the middle of the 20th century. But what the administration did was to separate migrant children and parents, right? Central American asylum seekers would show up at the border. The Trump administration separated, you know, thousands of people and at least 500 or more, as was discussed in the debate uh, last week or a couple of weeks ago, you know, they were um, separated and they still have not been reunited and the federal government does not have a way to reunite them. You know, incredibly troubling and disturbing stuff. And yet Trump was able to deflect, right? And really just lie uh, about his administration's record on immigration, which I think, you know, is without question, uh, much worse than the previous administration. But that's not to say the Obama administration had a record either. I mean, I, mean, I don't think that, you know, we, we need to just whitewash that history. And in fact, part of the reason Joe Biden had such a difficult time answering that accusation was because Democrats and Republicans have both supported punitive policies and they have a bad record on immigration. Now, that is something that they should own up to, in my opinion, and they should try to create and stake out some new ground here. You know, if there's one thing the last few years have done, it's to polarize the issue of immigration on partisan lines, as we haven't seen in the recent past. And the Democrats have an opportunity here. Whether or not they will or not, I think you know we need to wait and see. We also don't know what's going to happen in the election, um, you know. And I guess either way, people will need to organize and continue to push and to fight. What we do know is that regardless of who's in power, uh, Democrats or Republicans, regardless of who controls Congress, it's only through sustained organizing and pressure from activists and from the community that change has happened historically. So that's going to be you know, something, regardless of who wins, that we'll need to maintain. But I do think there's some reason for cautious optimism here. And Joe Biden said during the first 100 days of his administration, if he wins, you know, he would you know, push through 
you know, broad immigration reform that could create a path to citizenship for people in the country without authorization would, you know, legalize all the people who would qualify under a potential dream act. Um, but as activists know all too well, they've heard these promises in the past from the Obama administration and they learned the hard way, you know, that the Democrats have not always followed through. So I think the appropriate response is to defer judgment and to keep the pressure up regardless of who wins. Yeah, that sounds like a historian question. Um, I want to ask you one more question, and I promise, Maddie, it'll be a quick one, which is just, um, you know, there's been so many great Central American scholars, um, journalists uh, doing such important work on the ground. Um, who are folks that we should be reading? Who are folks that we should be listening to? You know, who are Central American uh, voices that we need to sort of center in, in this age and in this time period? You know, there's people right there in Los Angeles who are really on the forefront of a lot of this work. Uh, UCLA, you know, more than anything, you know, Cecilia Menjivar, Lesia Abrego are doing incredible work, you know, recently you know, expanded, you know, the Chicano Studies Department and some of the Chicano and Central American Studies Department at UCLA, uh, whose work I really you know, rely on and have learned so much from, as well as journalists like Oscar Martinez and others who work for the Salvadoran outlet El Faro. Uh, I really recommend people check out check out their work. Um, but you know, now more than ever, you know, these are the stories you know, we do need and the voices we do need to hear from. Um, and it's been encouraging to see you know, mainstream media outlets and publishers, uh, I think looking for those voices and stories as they rightfully should, uh, but you know, there's still a long way to go. There's still a long way to go to you know, reach some kind of parity in the publishing industry or in the world of journalism. And certainly as you and I both know uh, in academia. Yeah. Well, yeah, huge thanks, Adam. Um, I just want to sort of end by saying that uh, if, you, if you haven't been to Skylight, you know, do curbside, order it. Uh, the book's there. Um, our book is there too, East of East, to make it over at Monte, little plug for Monte. <laughs> um, I think that's it, right? That's all we got. Yeah, I would, I would, I would just second that, you know. As I was a member of Skylight when I lived in LA, a big fan of the store, would encourage everyone to, you know, to support them. And you know, thank you so much, Maddie, for having us today. Thank you so much for being here and uh, for sharing your work. I think um, our listeners are really going to find this discussion fascinating and, and useful as we kind of look at what's coming in 2021. Um, and Romeo, thank you so much for the, your thoughtful questions. Uh, this was a really great conversation. And um, again, everybody, the book is called The Deportation Machine by Adam Goodman. Uh, he was in conversation today with Romeo Guzman. Thank you both so much again, and uh, take care out there. Hopefully we'll be uh, linking arms in person in 2021 to start a new society that's more just. I don't know. That's what I'm hoping anyway. Um, all you. right. So long. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.